Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. Today on the show, a vocalist hero, someone I've been a fan of for decades now, Greg Atanito of the band The Bouncing Souls is on the show today. Huge, huge one for me. But more on that in a second. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can head over to the email address, turnedoutofpunkpodcast at gmail.com. There's also a Facebook page run by my brother and show producer, Tristan Abraham. I love you, little brother. And if you send him a message, he will get that message to me and uh, we can communicate that way. So thank you, Tristan, for doing that. Speaking of thank yous, I owe a huge thank you, as always, to the fine folks at Vans who came aboard two years ago now and said, we love this podcast. We want you to keep doing what you're doing. Book whoever you want. Uh, We just want to see you not have to do it out of your own pocket. And so for that, I am eternally grateful to the fine folks at Vans. They also are running House of Vans events coming up again this summer. Very excited for all of these. There's going to be other ones coming up in the spring too. Oh my gosh, the fun never stops with Vans, uh, these House of Vans parties. They don't want me to say that. They never were like, yo, can you say the fun never stops with Vans? I'm just ad-libbing right there. So I will leave it at that. I'm just very grateful to Vans for their support. Uh, Okay, moving on to today's show Today on the show, Greg Ananito of the band The Bouncing Souls. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with them. If you're not familiar with them, you are one of the few people involved in punk who hasn't heard of them. Everyone from like Skrillex to to Sami Zayn, friend of the show, Sami Zayn, uh, swears by this band, myself included. I can remember the first time I heard them on the Snow Jam sampler and was like, oh my gosh, this band is, is amazing. It was yeah, love at first sound, I guess. Yeah. And uh yeah, they've they're now celebrating thirty get this, they're celebrating thirty years in the music industry. My gosh, does time fly? Uh and so yeah, they've got a new EP coming out, they've got a tour coming up, and Greg has stopped by this show to have a conversation. I'm never going to have, like, I've gotten to meet Greg a few times over the years really briefly, but I've never had an extended sit-down conversation about his journey, the band's journey, and so I'm excited. I'm excited for you to hear it. It's brief, but, you know, that's how sometimes these things go on the show, and he will be back for, you know, probably a future one. Spoiler alert, he'll be back for a part two in the future at some point. But you will hear that in the show. Uh, It's jam-packed. It's jam-packed with a lot of stuff in it. So I I nerd out pretty hard on this one. For those of you also who have been inquiring and writing and wondering, because I know I said I was going to launch it this week, the Patreon has been delayed. Uh, You will know when it launches, believe me, you will know about it for a long time once it does launch. But I want to make sure it launches right. I want to make sure there's a lot of content there, I want to make sure I got some some uh, prototypes back of some merch items. I'm not joking when I say that. There is a prototype forthcoming for a merch item that I got to check out. And uh, once all those, you know, ducks are in a row, I'm going to launch this Patreon and launch it right. It would have been cool to launch it at episode 200 or just after episode 200. But you know what? Let these things happen the way they should happen, which is the right way. So you will be hearing about the Patreon as soon as it is all up and running. But for now, 
I will uh, just leave it at that. Okay. It's coming up. Uh, so anyway, I'm not going to ramble on any further. Here is Greg from the Bouncing Souls on Turn Out a Punk. Greg, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, as I was just telling you off air, uh, I'm a, mm-hmm. a huge, huge fan for a long, long time. So to get to punish you like this, this is a <laughs> great way to spend the evening for me. I really appreciate that. And um, I do don't mind talking about the Bouncing Souls and myself for a little while. Good. Well, that's that's <laughs> right. Well, let, let's get let the punishment begin, as they say. I got to start this off the way they all start off, which is, Greg, how'd you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Um, that's, I can't remember, like, there's no, like, huge exact moment. Uh, probably, like, a, 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 a different consecutive bunch of little moments. Um, the influences I had musically around me that were punk were probably sister originally. She's older than me, so she she hung out with some punkers and so they were they were filtering music and i was getting music fed through her a bit bands like who's do and like um replacements and i was wasn't fully dug into it yet but i sort of heard it offhand and thought it was cool and ramones and stuff like that and then you know as i started hanging out with brian from the bouncing souls that's actually when i got into it more because brian has was sort of like a, a, a notch ahead of just you know discovering punk and getting all into it like he had the music and so i i you know i would i have to give brian some credit to getting me into that next level and then we all started going to shows together like instantly and then it was like i was just like deep in like pretty quick in the part of New Jersey you grew up in, was your sister in any of those like mother bands or any of those buy our records type bands too? Um, uh, well, she wasn't deep into it, but she hung with um, her class. She was a year older than me. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of fun. I have to give these guys credit. And her class was a group that called themselves the 13 fun guys. Okay? okay. So we're talking about like 1987 now. Now, just picture, picture like a group of thirteen hipsters that you might see now. But back in 1987, they were like the most out there gang. <laughs> they were sort of hippies, but they were punks. Like they weren't yeah. hippies, and they were like. So if you were like one or two dudes like that in a school, you just get shit on. But there was enough of them that they were like a crew and they, they, so they kind of, they kind of rolled hard, even though they were like, they wore like John Lennon glasses and they didn't dress tough. Um, and they were in deep, very music nerds, like all the local punk stuff, Jersey, like they were in so deep. Like I was like in awe of them kind of, as soon as I became aware of them. So my sister was buds with them. Like my sister was buds with all of them and ended up going out with one of them. And, um, so she like went to see the Smiths and stuff. And, and, you know, so she peripherally well, she wasn't deep into the music, like, you know, but she sort of all of it filtered in. She hung with all of them. She was friends with all of them. She was, a, you know, good, go to art class. She, she was an artist. So, um, 
I hung out with them peripherally a little bit too. So they were influenced and they were just because they were so outcast and it's hard to even, I mean, people are outcasted now, but back then it was so different. If you were into mm-hmm. music and dressed a certain way, how outcasted you got. <laughs> so they were very influential in that way. You know, you met Brian and started going to shows. Were you go? Were you into music prior to that? Were you like, getting into stuff obviously through your sister, but like, were you kind of seeing stuff on MTV and and finding out about stuff on your own at this Um, point too? Yeah, I was into music, but it it just wasn't quite as punk. I, I loved Bruce Springsteen. I was Mm. deep into Bruce Springsteen and it, it wasn't that cool to be into Bruce Springsteen then. Like later on, he had a resurgence of coolness like 25 years later, but back then it, it wasn't, but, I really deeply connected with him because, you know, the early records, he was from New Jersey. Like I knew where he grew up. I knew the town. And it was like in 1984, I went and saw him in giant stadium. It was, you know, he did like 10 nights sold out like 70,000 people, which when you think, I think about it now and it's just, it's kind of insane. But, um, it's crazy. So, um, Seeing that that experience was so earth shaking for me because, you know, he he busts into he starts hungry heart, and he doesn't sing the first verse. Seventy thousand people start <laughs> singing the first verse, and it's just like it was earth shattering. Like, blew my mind. You know, as as much as your mind can be blown. Yeah. So, um, that had such an impact so deeply, like. Obviously, it came out later. Like uh, everything we did was to sort of recreate that, like create sing-alongs because of the power of them. You know, like we all were on the same page with that. Like, you know, we have different mus- musical influences, but the one thing that we all worked t- together was like the ultimate sing-along. You know? Yeah, I guess it's like, and that's the thing about the Bouncing Souls is like there's such an anthemic quality to everything you guys do and it's i guess that's where it's coming from that's great that it's great that you say that it's great that obviously people feel that way you always you know being inside of it you always feel like man we have not written anything close to hungry heart but you know we've had an impact and 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 it's nice that we have it's really great oh absolutely like i think that's the thing is like how many bands can say 30 years but also like that's 30 years of you know not having like a you know a a divergent period it's like 30 years of being a punk band and and like having that influence and that importance and that magnitude for 30 years yeah it's um it's hard to grasp all that like that's why it's it's cool like i'll mention it now that the book that we're putting out this year it it just hits the tip of the iceberg of, you know, people's stories. And we just wanted people to tell a little snapshot. It doesn't have, to, didn't have to be huge, just like something that related to their lives that why the bouncing souls had a played a little part in their lives or a huge part or just any part. And it was great getting all these stories, but still that's almost secondary to what my immediate life is and the fact that I still interact with Brian and Pete and we get along and we enjoy being together and we, we can be like 17 year olds in a second. Like we, we relate, we have so much deep like experience, but that, you know, that it's like we, that we share. Um, 
I, so I, I really, um, I have a lot, I'm grateful that those relationships, we've kept them going. <laughs> well, going back to when you were 17, what were some of the first shows you went to other than that Bruce Springsteen show? But like when you started going okay. to punk shows, what was the first yeah. one? Well, a, a great first show was I saw the kinks on the pier in, in New York city. Oh, that's awesome. Oh my God. I was probably 14 and I went, my bud's mom dropped us off and it was like, I mean, we're talking about probably 82 or 83. So it's come dancing, I I guess. Yeah, probably. Yeah. That's an awesome song. Yeah. It was the come dancing tour, but I had never witnessed like such like alcohol and pot smoking. (laughs) Like it was off the hook, New York City in like 1983, outside yeah. of the pier. It was it was blowing again. Another mind blower. That was right before I went with the same kid. Actually, probably that within the year we we went to see the Kinks and we went and saw Bruce Springsteen. So that was huge. Um, and so I had been to a couple of concerts, like those were bigger concerts. And then uh, when I first went to a real show, it probably was at City Gardens with. Oh no no! Um, this older dude, this dude who was in my sister's class who had graduated, took me, Brian, another kid to New York City on Halloween in 1987. We saw the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I think it was Thelonious Monster, and the Red Hot Chili Peppers. This was like for me, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, like at their best. Yeah, they had they were touring on Uplift's Mofo Party Plan. And they were doing the body paint. And it was Halloween night in New York City in the 80s. It was just amazing. It was just incredible. Like, uh, again, that probably was my first show shows. And then we saw them two days later. So it was like a Friday. And then Brian called me up on Sunday and was like, dude, Red Hot Chili Peppers are playing at City Gardens in Trenton, New Jersey on Sunday night. Let's go. So we went and it was like, a whole different kind of show. It was like a Sunday night. There's probably only like 350 people there. They weren't in the full body paint. They were kind of tired. (laughs) And it was like, whoa, like this is, you know, that experience, which of course later on as a band guy that went on tour, like it all added up. I was like, this is so interesting. You know, so that was a huge like show, small show experience, those two together. And then I saw a bunch of bands, like we saw the Ramones, I saw, you know, Fishbone was a huge influence, just an incredible band back then. Mm-hmm. Um, they're still great, but back then they were just amazing. Um, uh, a bunch of like local ska bands, we saw Ween's first show. Ween's <laughs> first show? Yeah, Ween's first <laughs> show, maybe second show at City Gardens, that's where they started out in Trenton. Yeah, and it was just the two of them, and we were just like, "Okay, what? This is just weird." A couple of wise guys—they were really just being wise guys on stage from that at that time. They barely were playing music. Where were you getting like these bands from? Like, where were you hearing about this stuff? Like, were you buying records at this point too? Yeah, but mostly what we were fortunate enough. Like now that I I see the world and I've seen where people grow up and and time and place um place that we went to is called city gardens in trenton um 
if you Google it for a second and you check one of their like playbills, like for a month, you know, whatever, it's ridiculous. The bands that came through there from like 1982 or three through like mid nineties, ridiculous. So literally I saw Toots and the Maytals there. I saw Debbie Harry there. This we're talking about like a 600 size venue, 600 people. I saw Parliament Funkadelic there. I saw uh, Government Issue. I saw Yellow Man. I saw like this, just all these ska bands. I just think, I mean, I'm just naming, just I'm naming you stuff, and it's such a mix. It's not just punk. So that's what we were. We weren't like, oh, we're punks now. You know what I mean? Like that's what it wasn't really like that so much then. You know, mm-hmm. it was especially there. Like it was just you know all it was like underground you know i don't even know there wasn't as much of work for it there was punk there was definitely we were punks and we were like it was a th- punk was a thing but it wasn't as um no codified i guess yeah you, you of course if you were like you'd go see debbie harry but you wouldn't necessarily you know or whatever it was like we saw so many cool bands there that's the only ones i can remember but um um I'll probably remember some as we go along. Yeah, absolutely. Well, was like, well, like, you know, mentioned like going to see the ska stuff and, and, you know, Toots and the Maytals and, and mm-hmm. Parliament Funkadelic and stuff like that. Like, you yeah. know, this is a, a time pre-internet, pre, you know, like a lot of this stuff becoming sort of, you know, part of the canon of great music. Like, where were you kind of finding out about this stuff? Like, once well, again, was it, it? It was, it was probably half of it was like, you know, let's just go. Sometimes we would just go there. We were yeah. like, all right, let's go see. I remember one time we just went and we saw they might be giants when they were just started out. And then we got into them. And then, um, so I would say my education of music came a lot from just like city gardens and then going to the record store and you'd like, Oh, let's look up the might be giants records. And then, you know, it was just, it was a very physical and social thing. So people would just tell you stuff in the, in the record store, you'd, you know, somebody would tell you about they might be giants. And then, so it was all a totally different way of discovering music. It was, um, I can't even say it was something specific other than word of mouth. It was mostly word of mouth. Like you go into the record store and, and look at, I look for the cramps record and then you'd see other stuff like near the cramps record. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, or that, you know, bunch of box of seven inches that had punk seven inches. And you'd look at other ones and then the na- names started becoming familiar. And, and um, Brian and Pete, we all started hanging out and, and, and they, we all had different influences. Like Brian had different influences that were, he was learning about things from, you know, so mm-hmm. Um, he would pass the, all that along. And then we had a crew of friends that would all be finding out about stuff. It was all word of mouth. Who were some of the local bands at that point? Like, I guess there's the blisters from New Jersey. I'm trying to think of some like New Jersey late eighties bands. Um, AOD was probably one. Absolutely. Yeah. The, yeah. the, the Kings. So we, yeah. So we definitely listened to AOD. I never got a chance to see them, but, uh, until later. And then chunks I put out there, their retrospective, which was kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, our, our label so um yeah that's just to name a few of the more we also the early, did sticks yeah. and stones too right yes they were friends of ours so uh, um sticks and stones they were uh active when we started they all kind of start we all kind of started at the same time yeah 
No, I, I, I think that first seven inch by them, I, all the, all the records are just ridiculous. That band is super underrated. Yeah. They're just PV and was a great songwriter. He's a great songwriter. Where did you kind of go from, you know, you're going to these shows and, you know, it's not too long after that, the bouncing souls start. Did you think about doing other bands? Or did you have any other bands prior to that? No, um, I, it, it started, Pete and Brian were in a cover band. Um, and they, I used to just hang out. So we would go to shows and then when they played covers, I would hang out. And then eventually I started, they were like, you want to sing? So I actually stood up and sang like, I can't explain by the who. So that was also a huge moment for me. Um, they're like, what do you know the words to? And then, so doing that, the physical thing of singing, you know, and the band's playing loud and I had a microphone definitely was just like a rush. And I was like, whoa, this is amazing. You know? Mm-hmm. So I wanted to hang out. I wanted to sing. And then um, we were all seeing shows at the same time. So it all kind of occurred to us, like, these bands are all playing originals and stuff. And so that was when it started evolving to this, like, let's write songs. And then I definitely pushed that into um, interacting with Pete and Brian. And then um, that evolved uh, into us starting to write music together. What was it like for you when you got up there and sang for the first time? Because, you know, it's it's a very unnatural experience and you have such a unique stage presence. Did you kind of feel right away how you're going to, you know, this was going to be how you're going to perform on stage? Or was that like a feeling out process for you? Or No, I was so insecure. I was like sort of the classic, one of the classic stereotypes, lead singer types, like pretty shy, pretty insecure, pretty... Um, like craving attention, you yeah. know, needing to <laughs> oh, be I know glor- the type. needing to be glorified. Um, all those things were like sort of hardwired in. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Without those things, I would not have been motivated to like expose myself in such a way, you know, over and over and over again, you know. It takes so, a unique kind of madness. Exactly. I had no idea. I literally would hide behind jumping around. Like I would just act like a maniac and yell and scream. And I was so just, I don't know what made me do it. It was just, it was probably, you know, the music and I had, hadn't find an, found an identity and I was so insecure. And this was sort of just like the very beginning of, of, of me starting to find a, a true identity so it was like this felt right i could is, is all i can say and then i had to go back and do it again because it felt right even though i definitely was not good and it took years before i really started actually singing well and and um actually knowing how to do it and like pacing myself and like being able to do it on tour and and tour for weeks at a time without losing my voice all that mm-hmm. stuff took years and years of trial and error uh, I probably may have benefited from actual vo- voice lessons and stuff, but I was too much of a punk with an attitude for that kind of business. Of course. At the time. So um, it took me longer. It took me all <laughs> trial and error, longer than it may have needed to, but it's worked out. You know, going back to that early period when you guys first formed the band, uh, the first thing you guys put out is that seven inch on Complex, right? Yes. 
Was that like – did you guys do a demo before that or anything? Yeah, we played – we did a demo like in a couple of demos, one in the basement of Brian's house. There's this original song called Brain Dead. just one song recorded. There's like five copies. I think my mom has one copy. <laughs> That's She's awesome. like cherishing it. Um, there might only be one or two copies. Like Brian, I don't know where it is, but um, it was sort of like a Red Hot Chili Peppers-ish kind of song. Okay. And um, we had like a pause in it and like had the phone ringing and then somebody answers the phone. Like, I guess, you know, it was sort of like silly punkish. Like that was our first like silly punk sort of stuff. Yeah. That's like, awesome. And that's never come out in any form. Right. So no, no. I mean, it sounded so horrible. I mean, I don't know if it's possible, <laughs> but, and it's pretty embarrassing, but now it's almost like it's so far gone. It's like almost, they don't need to be embarrassed about it anymore. Absolutely. I think you've kind of redeemed yourself no matter how bad it sounds. Yes. Um, and so going from like that to complex records, like how did you get hooked up with that label? Cause that label, they did that weird comp. I think that the blisters are even on, right? Searching yeah. Annoy, um, I think is, is the comp. Yeah. It's, I'm, I, it's hard for me to remember actually. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, no, do not worry. That's what this is about. I don't want to say like, I, I I would be shooting in the it, it, at memories that I'm not quite sure about, so it's probably better <laughs> if I don't go there. <laughs> no problem. But I guess like I kind of what I'm kind of getting at like that's your first label experience, um, right. but then you guys start your own label pretty sh- right after, right? Yeah, I can give you a, a, a quick summary of how that worked out. So as it happens in many cases, like we were not, you know, you, you get all excited, you don't know the difference. Someone's like, oh, we want to put out your record. And then they don't really support it that much. So you're like, yep. what the hell? What the heck? Yeah, you know. And then we we had, went on a campaign to get signed to majors. So that was such a thing back then. Like you wanted to get signed to a major. We knew a couple of people who knew a couple of people. This A and R guy, yada yada yada. It was all about like reaching out to these A and R people, which we did. We like were systematic when we got motivated. Um, sent out press kits and all these things like which were expensive it took lots of time compared to like how you can send things digitally these days mm-hmm. um we committed a lot of time and effort brian like made art on the on the packages and everything um and then we got rejection letter after rejection letter after rejection letter which we put up my i just started putting them up on the wall of the bathroom you read them while you're like on the toilet <laughs> <laughs> and it dawned on us as soon as it dawned on us that like we're just you know that moment we're just like why don't we just put it out ourselves it was a pivotal moment because as soon as you make that choice you're empowered so whatever you do from that moment on it's you're gonna win you're already winning because you're like i'm not trying to get someone to do something for me i'm actually doing it even if it Mm -hmm. takes me forever even if i'm shoveling snow you know, and I'm doing it. I'm doing it. At least it's getting me there slowly, or whatever, little bit, little bit by by little bit. And then you have you're taking your master. You're a master of your own destiny to some extent. You know. So as soon as we made that choice, we it felt so right, and we were relieved, and it it, it put a flame under our punk selves. You know what I mean? It was like we don't fucking need anybody. Why do we? Why are we doing this? Let's go. You know, let's, let's let's go record. Let's get some money or borrow some money. We'll put press seven inches and 
grab five of them and go skateboard around New Brunswick and try to sell them on the street. <laughs> you think about that now and it's just like the motivation and like who has time for that? You know, I think about that now and I'm just like, what a lifestyle we had. And I said that in an interview, I just did an interview for this guy who did our first interview ever for a, a magazine in Jersey 30 years ago. Wow. And he asked about that time and I said, you know, we're living at that time. And I think the biggest thing about it back then was that we just would hang out and stuff would happen. Like we all lived in a house. There was you know, no internet. So there wasn't like, oh, all this stuff. You can be on your phone and look at what's happening and fucking wherever. And you couldn't do that. You were just in your moment. You know, like you were sitting on the couch. It was like six o'clock in the evening. Maybe someone was doing something upstairs. Someone would roll in and someone else would roll in and you hang out. Like maybe we should get some beer. Maybe we just sit here because we don't have any money. And it's such a different existence. And then sometimes there'd been like a party would start or we'd go skate or, you know, just it was just like such a different existence. And I'm just, I'm not trying to be nostalgic and stuff, but I, I want to say that I'm so glad that I, I had that because I, I carry that with me. I try to keep that with me, that, that ability to be spontaneous, you know, it's, it's not easy so much, but, um, I want to always have that. Yeah. I guess it, sorry, go on. No, that's it. Yeah. I was going to say, I guess, I guess it comes from like being bored, you know, you'd be bored yeah. back then and now yeah. you're never bored. There's always something to watch or do. Yeah. You can pick up your phone and you can, I mean, it's like the, the, the negative and positive are so extreme. You know, you can learn mm -hmm. so much. You can explore every cool ass band that you never you always wanted to hear or, or whatever obscure stuff you always wanted to learn about. Like I can geek out on, for all night long on all kinds of crap. Everyone can. So that's kind of amazing. And you can't deny the fact that you can learn and know all this stuff. And at the same time, it's sort of lost its magic a little too. Like the mm -hmm. charm of it. Uh, it it's, there's a charm lost in the way we used to discover things for sure. Well, I guess, yeah, it's, it's taken away that spontaneity that you were talking about a little bit mm -hmm. in, in yeah. Discovery, certainly. Mm -hmm. But back to when it was a time of discovery, uh, the first yeah. thing you put out is that Green Ball Crew EP. Yes. Uh, the much sought after now Green Ball Crew EP. Um, what was it like when you guys first put that out? Was that just something you distributed locally or were you looking at, you know, we mentioned the rejection from the major labels at that point, but was it like, you know, was it something that you kind of were, you know, trying to just distribute yourselves at this point or are you looking for, or is this something that you sent internationally or sent out to, be reviewed or things like that yeah it was it was um it was a torturous process putting that together um for many reasons it took so long and it was one of those situations where by the time it came out we had written a song we had written joe lies and mm -hmm. or, and it was like the moment we wrote joe lies we were like oh there's no point in playing all the songs on that CD. It's not even out yet. <laughs> so it was a weird situation. And we really like, it was torture recording it because of the details are, are, are 
torturous to even talk about, but we were recording in the studio in Philly and they were using us like as like guinea pigs to get like get this new board up. The engineer was didn't care. He was too cool for us. He was a young guy who didn't you could tell he just was like working there. Yeah. They just didn't treat us well. It was like all these things. It's a classic scenario of like we have just a little bit of money and our songs weren't really together yet, you know? So um, by the time it came out, we almost – it was kind of good that it, it was all tortured and the world didn't really see that much of, of that, that the Six Ball crew because it wasn't – it was what we were before we really became uh, – started to become ourselves in a more true way. You know, it, Obviously, it was important and it's not – I'm not saying I don't like it, but um, it was – a sort of a stepping process for us and uh um it was kind of torture <laughs> I, I, I totally understand that too it's just, <laughs> well no it's because i wanted to ask that like what's the point because you guys do eventually find this sound right which is yeah. you know your sound that you've had that that is like the bouncing soul sound like and i guess mm-hmm. it's from that joe lies right like that's the point where where you know it it changes and consolidates it was a tur- that was the turning point that was very it, we all knew it and, and we had, it's like we had worked so hard too up to that point we'd already been a band for a while we'd been living in New Brunswick probably five years so we had been we had discovered some serious frustrations you know you know obviously not able to deal with like young you know 20, 20 21 year olds like you know, we were working so hard, but sometimes there's nothing you could do. We had no shows or we would do long weekends and everybody was having real moments of being really discouraged. So writing that song at that time really fueled our fire because the song literally, we could just get behind it way more than the other songs we had written. And that feeling was pretty incredible. That's awesome to actually have that moment where it just clicks and you can you can tell it's clicking. Yeah, it's it's a pretty special thing, and um, I think we, we it guided us to like the rest of our songwriting career. Like the same, it's the same thing. Like the three of us, or you know, with Michael, or or um, with Shao, with Michael, or and with George. Like we're in a room, and then there's this thread of like intuition that we kind of follow, and. Um, it seems to work. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess you guys rushed to get the Argyle EP out after that, right? Because it's it comes out the same year, right? Shortly thereafter, yeah. Uh, the, exactly. the Green Ball Crew. It shows how we add Joe Lies, and we were like, we gotta just like make the Green Ball Crew kind of go away a little bit and show the world what we really wanted them to see. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and we felt more proud. We felt more proud of of the Argyle EP, and it, it just felt like. Uh, more genuine from us and i think and we noticed how people responded to it like oh this band is something special that it's there which didn't really get that response as much from the green ball crew Mm -hmm. did it also feel at that time like there was a you know a scene kind of forming like or or bands like around you that you guys were feeling like you're a part of something larger at that time or do you still feel like you're a band in isolation uh yeah all along like when we first moved to new brunswick like 
there was a scene like we kind of refueled the scene in New Brunswick. It, it had a surgence in the eighties. And then by the time we arrived there in 89, it was kind of dead, but we were so stoked and we, we, you know, we put on shows and so bands started evolving. So by the early nineties, um, new bands were forming. We were definitely like a big sort of a center, not just necessarily the center, but we were definitely a part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, of thing being created in New Brunswick and up then now we're probably talking about the mid nineties. So that's just before like all those bands started getting popular, like the epitaph bands and like, um, you know, green day. And so Joe lies probably came out like two, like two years or two before that. Like, I'm not even sure, but so yeah, it was just on the cusp of that style and era that kind of, started to evolve um and we just sort of hit our first or two u.s tours around that time and that's how the word got around about us well it's funny because it seems like the scene that you're coming out of in new brunswick is very different than that you know international scene that we're talking about that's forming around that same time which is more like sort of the, the epitaph bands and the fat records bands and California bands that were kind of going, did you feel like you were kind of existing in two different worlds or did the scene seem a lot more similar than I'm letting on? Um, well, I think we had, we, we did our time as a local band. Um, and I, I think about it now, like see local bands that like get big in their, their local town and they think they're hot shit and that all happened to us. And then you, you're like, go on a tour and you're like, whoa, you know, this wake up call happens and you're like, oh, we have to do that in every town in the U S and you just like, and <laughs> at that age you have the you know, you can start getting your ego can go all over the place. So at least it can happen depending on your personality. But, um, that ha- you see that happen to local bands a lot. And, um, so we, we had that whole thing. Like we went through that whole cycle of becoming a big local band and then, realizing we ha- we had to start taking it to the next level and that's where it became frustrating because it was hard to get on a US tour and that 7 inch really helped us it got good reviews in like you know all the all the cool mags and stuff you know and then youth brigade found out out about us BYO wanted to um man- you know work with us so all those things started happening within a year or two which helped us get into that next level, which was I become a, a, a U.S. touring band and go tour clubs and become a draw of some uh, to some or at least be a good opening band <laughs> for, yeah. for, for another band. Well, I was going to say, like, also, how did you guys go over? Because, you know, you're doing something you know different than all the California bands were doing at the time, especially early on. Like it obviously, you know, I saw you guys on those tours and it was always incredible seeing you because you'd stand out so much like on snow jam and things like that. But it was like, what was it like for you guys playing to, you know, what essentially was like a, a lot of times I imagine like a skate punk kind of audience. Yeah. Um, well, we had already been used to playing weird shows like, yeah. Yeah. Ska shows. Um, and we were like sort of a weird funk punk band. So we were always weird. We were always like the band that didn't fit in. And we were proud of that. We always didn't want, we didn't want to be, uh, mm-hmm. in a genre like we didn't want to be punk we didn't want to be um and that just even not knowing anything more than what you don't want to be is what we sort of followed 
we loved so many different types of music as a group, as individuals. So um, we were kind of one of those bands that like, you know, in the, it was also like a serious straight edge hardcore scene around us, which we were just like so many dudes like at those shows, no girls. And we're like, these guys are not doing it right, man. If there's no girls at your shows, there's something not right. So we're not interested in that. But we play lots of shows, those hardcore shows, as being so total oddballs. But I'm kind of digressing. I think we were sort of a band that, because of our energy and our like sort of positive energy, people couldn't totally hate us. Like even if they're like, "These guys are weirdos," but I'm walking away and I'm like, I feel good for some reason. So I don't <laughs> totally hate them. Yeah. They might not buy a record. They might not come see us again. I might not think about it much. But I think we have this certain vibe, and I think um, it comes from somewhere that's hard to really, really put a, words to and explain other than who we are and the energy that we somehow deeply want to bring to the world, you know, like a positive and empowering energy. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what people connect with. So they're they're like – I like Sky, I like this, or I like punk, blah, blah, blah. But I like these dudes. They're like kind of just out there. I don't know what they're about, but it feels good, you know? You're definitely a band that transcends genre, you know? And like, and that's like you said, like it's, it's a band that like you're not like an epifat band mm. in sound, or you're not like yeah. a, a straight edge hardcore band, but yet you're a band that could appeal to people that like all this type of stuff because it's once again like, like you're saying, it's like it's it's something positive. It's something that's that's you know striving for something hopeful. Yes, and I think that was our primary vibe. Like for all of us, we just wanted to bring that to our lives and our, and bring it to the world. And we had all our little things that we did. Like obviously, too. Like there, all those West Coast bands were like the the big thing. Now we're jumping ahead a couple of years, so that's why we wore the East Coast things on our on our you know we're just literally wrote the song east coast fuck you because we just wanted to be like have the pride and sort of make it a thing that we were an east coast band because all the california bands were just like the most popular thing that everybody was all google gaga about mm-hmm. so we're like we're not going to try to be that we're not that we're east coast fuck you you know but eventually it does kind of change too right like and maybe it's around that time too where it felt like you know, like you said, you know, you, you were a great opening band, but then you became the headliner. Yeah, that was a little while later. So we probably spent like all through the mid to late 90s being that sort of opener until probably like the late, late 90s when we started doing headline headlining tours. And uh, yeah, it was just like step by step, you know, pretty steady, pretty steady pace. Do you think it was around a maniacal laughter, though, that people started to get it? Like, I remember seeing you guys around shows around that point, and at least in the area that I was coming from, like, that was where, you know, like, you guys would win over these crowds every night. Like, was that the record where, you yes, know, di- I, I think distribution? So. Yeah. Yeah, that was um, – I think we came into that next level of ourselves, and it started showing because we were repeatedly – probably did a couple tours on it and then we were, would go back to those and be able to headline the small, like, you know, little venues or like the halls and stuff like that. Um, 
pack out the all ages shows in California and stuff. That was like so cool when we did that. Um, weird, weird ass question that you probably don't have an answer to, but uh-huh. do you know why half that record press seems to have been sun bleached? Like, yeah, it was a mistake. Oh, it was a mistake. After. Yeah, it <laughs> okay. was, a, um, yeah, it was one of those things that like they had, there was a, a mistake in the pressing. Um, and then we were just like right away, we're like, oh, cool. That'll be like the weird lim- limited weird pressing mistake, ver- you know, and then they pressed up the ones with the proper art. Okay, that makes sense now. As a kid, it always I was always like, what happened? Did like a bunch of these get left in the sun? Or yeah, yeah, I no, couldn't it, figure it out. Yeah, it was a mistake in the printing. Uh, going back to that record of that time, like that Snow Jam tour that you were on, it mm-hmm. felt like that, that must have been such a interesting period to be playing shows too because – you know, like Blink-182 is on that tour. There's all these bands that were on that tour that would, like yourselves included, obviously, that would go mm-hmm. on to become huge bands. But this is still at that stage just before that. Yeah, that was – and that particular show was probably one of the first bigger festival shows we played, you know. And, like, we were like, wow, this is a whole cool world. Like, we're going to go snowboarding. Like, um, Padge <laughs> – you know, took us snowboarding. The, the yeah. promoter. And, do you know Padge? I, I met him years and years ago. Okay, um, yeah. But and then more recently uh, at a at a festival and stuff. But yeah, a, a legend, a Montreal legend. Yeah, I mean, crazy. Um, um, so that all the whole experience. So just from the whole experience being at a festival, it was just different than playing club shows, and we didn't know anything about it. We're like, oh, and um. So that was a big that was a big gig for us, I think, in many ways. And it was an international gig too. We were in Canada, so it was like a Canadian festival. And then, so we were really broadening our our world by like seeing how things are done in Canada, which were different than America. There was not really any festivals in America back then, and it's weird to think about it now. Um, but there there were there were none. There was then, you know, the Lollapalooza came. Lollapalooza happened in the early nineties and then the warp tour started in like ninety six or ninety five or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, there was a couple like obviously like rock festivals, but um compared to now there were really barely any. Well it was such a unique thing too to have like a, a cross country, especially in Canada, touring festival that, you know, yeah. focused on such a an at the time niche genre yeah um and it, it just the time and place for it was perfect and and um it was such a great tour for all the bands too because we we it helped they all the tour helped so many bands grow yeah you know you could go on warp tour in the summertime and then play club shows in the fall in the same cities and it really helped us a lot yeah, it was kind of the winter answer to the Warp Tour. Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways. Sure. I guess, like, was playing on those types of festivals to you, was that something that, you know, like, you know, it's obvious, you know, the Warp Tour and, and I imagine Snow Jam as well, there's, like, you know, plus and minuses to playing a festival show like that. But, you yeah. know, once again, you guys are a band that seems to have mastered it. Was that, you know, like, the point where you realized, like, oh, I can do this, I can make playing in front of these types of audiences work. And I guess it's once again, goes back to your, you know, like you were saying years of not fitting in. Not quite. I think back then I was still 
like we were still a very much a small club band. And I, I don't think we really learned how to be a festival band until like the early 2000s. Like, like properly had to, to really play to more of a festival crowd, which sometimes you just kind of like, I'll give you a fun example of what we, how we learned. We opened up for Green Day in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, we did, I think we did like 10 dates. We arrived, you know, the day, usually when you fly to Europe, you want to go a day before so you can get a night's sleep. Otherwise, like you end up having, you, you arrive in the morning, you go, you take it at a red eye, then you're kind of awake all day. And then by the time six o'clock hits or something, you just, your body just wants to crash. But then the gig's starting. So that's what happened to us, like the scheduling or whatever. We like arrived in the morning, we're like, hey, cool, we're in Lisbon, we're in Portugal, we're on tour with Green Day. Like everyone's, of course, like out of their minds, excited <laughs> yeah. all day, running around the freaking ridiculous, like, stadium little stadium that we're playing um so sure enough six seven o'clock hits everyone's just like trying not to fall over we get on stage okay i don't know how many people fifteen thousand, twenty thousand people and we play our first song maybe play we played two songs or three songs and then just like we're in a club we're just like stop just like turn around just like dudes like whatever, like tuning guitars or like whatever, stop. From the crowd, 15,000 people comes this voracious chant, Billy Joe, Billy Joe. And we're all looking at each other like, fucking start playing now, you know? Like, <laughs> so that was a huge lesson, like in, in playing like a big stage like that, like – don't fuck around. You're the opening band. Like, so we wrote that set list out. Like, you know, we got 30 minutes. There, there is not a second of silence in that 30 minutes tom- tomorrow night, you know? <laughs> They're never going to have that chance to chant again. So that's just a good example of the first time we got a little lesson in playing the bigger type of shows, like where you're connecting to people in like literally in more a bigger distance. And, and if you don't keep their hold them, they're gonna, you're going to lose them really quick. What record was that on? That was we just recorded Summer Vacation and left for the tour. So I guess it was the end, Hopeless Romantic. We were still we had Hopeless Romantic, and we literally like left the studio, finished recording, and went on tour with them like a week or two later. It hadn't come out yet. It came then. It came out in the summer, so it was like somewhere in the spring, I guess. I don't remember when it was, but learned a lot on that tour. And and for years, going back to Europe, people were like, I first saw you on opening for Green Day, you know, which so it did a lot for us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I guess, but like, but at that point, you'd already played a warp tour, right? Or no? Yes, we had played a couple. We had played a handful of warp tours, but the European festivals and European like Green Day shows are, are the next level for sure. What's the difference between playing like a, a, you know, like a festival show and then I guess an opening slot, I I guess, well, that's the difference, right? Yeah, you, 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 exactly. People at a festival are a little bit more open to be like, all right, let me check out some, some bands, you know, there's a lot of bands playing, but you know, that was like a wild Green Day crowd, you know, that was just ready to see Green Day and you know, they didn't hate us, but if we stopped playing, they were just like, get Billy Joe out here. (laughs) (laughs) How many warp tours did you guys do in total? Um, 
I think we did a count a couple times if I remember. It's like at least nine or ten. Well, like that. But we didn't do all of them. Like you know, we we do parts of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you ever do a whole summer? Oh yeah, we did that at least like three, four, five times. I don't know, but like the whole tour. Yeah, we've done that a bunch of times. Was that like as hard as I would imagine it to be in a band? Like I could only, you know, just, yeah, I could only imagine what it's like. Yeah. It's like, I don't know. Like if there's like such a thing as like band boot camp, you know, like that's what it was, you know, you have to be like, it's a hardcore thing. Like if you're driving, it it happens. You could do it on various levels. Like if you're doing it in a bus, it's about as best as it can be, but it was still really hard. Um, so it was hard on many, many levels, <laughs> you know, like the physical thing, being in the weather, having like lots of hardcore drives and then just being stuck in a parking lot for hours and hours and hours. The food sometimes sketchy. You can't find a bathroom. It's just like ninja training, you know, like yeah. Yeah. A- on some level too. And uh, a great time too, like summer camp too. All of that all rolled into one, you know. Yeah, no, I would have never survived. I, I, I really don't think I could have made it. I don't know how I did it. I mean, I toured for like nine or ten months a year for like ten years. And I don't know how the fuck I did it. I think about it now. I mean, it's like a young man's game. That's how yeah. I did it. And I love that I did it. Um, but I, I definitely cannot do it anymore. It's also like it's just changed like that kind of like – do bands do that kind of touring now even like it just seems yeah like- i don't think so no they don't i mean new bands don't i mean sure like established huge acts go on tour for like two years but they also can you know they're living in a way that they can they choose they do as many shows as they choose mm-hmm. they take time mm-hmm. off in between and so they, i think that's the only level that that exists you can't really i mean i guess bands do do it though i mean they live in a van for two months i mean i guess somebody's doing it but I mean, like, yeah, like you're right. That definitely happens. But I mean, for like you're saying, like a sustained period of, of years. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I really have no idea. And and I think the, the thing is now is we had a better gauge on how, how, uh, what, if it was giving us any, any good, you know, we would come back to a city and know whether it was worth it being there you know mm-hmm. but i think it might be harder to gauge that now because there isn't as many there's not as focused scenes as there was then you know you, you'd go back and you'd see the same kids that were putting on the same shows in the same town and it was all very a focused little scene that you could kind of contact with those people and i don't know if that exists or not anymore it may i just don't know yeah you're right it's, it's definitely you know an evolved kind of thing where it, it the focus has changed, but like you know what that does though when you do go from town to town, those you make those diehard fans, like the fans yeah. that yes. depend you on make you. The connection exactly. You're right face to face with people, and then you hang out with them after the show, and then you see them six months later, and then there's a relationship developing, and you know we developed our relationship face to face with everybody, which I think is amazing and. I'm proud of us for, for that, you know? Mm-hmm. And it, it also feels like, you know, you're a band that, you know, uh, inspires like a, a deep connection from fans. Like it just feels like fans like feel, um, you know, like a, like a, a deeper level of attachment than a lot of other bands get. 
Yeah, I think we wouldn't have made it this long if there wasn't that, you know, because we have done so much touring and done so much, so many shows that without that feeling at the shows, I wouldn't have been able to survive. <laughs> I wouldn't have wanted to be involved in it if it wasn't like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was it like when you did East Coast Fuck You and having to face people like Fletcher afterwards? <laughs> Fletcher loved it. He loved it. He was into it. Uh, hell yeah. He was sitting there at the side of the stage. <laughs> That'd be the hell one yeah. person I'd be like, fuck, what's he going to yeah. think about this one? Well, I think that's what we, we played East coast. Fuck you on the warp tour. And Bill Stevenson came up to me and you know what Bill Stevenson looks like. Yeah. yeah. And obviously I knew who he was. So just uh, so intimidated by him and just like in awe it, in a sense, came up to me. It was like in his very like super, you know, he just looks like he's going to be this crazy gorilla. And then he's like the smartest, nerdiest dude, you know, like sweet nerdy dude. He comes up to me. He's like, that song East Coast Fuck You, that that was the coolest song. He's like, nobody writes songs like that anymore. That's really cool. And I was he's like, that's great. And he walks away. And I was like, oh, my God, that was amazing, you know. So that's the kind of reaction we got from all those bands because they got it. They're like, this band has a cool attitude. You know, it's about having an attitude. And that was what I felt like I could just do East Coast Fuck You anywhere in the world and just be like, who doesn't like to say fuck you, you know? Yeah. And then then play it. And I, I would, you know, also antagonize people and be like, sorry. You're not from the East Coast. Not everyone can be, you know, and then start playing the song. And, you know, that's to me is punk. <laughs> you know? Yeah. If there isn't a little bit of that, um, I always love bands that are like that, you know, like engage me, you know, make me, you know, don't kiss my ass. You know, I, I want I want you to be like that. I, I love bands like that. So um, I think because I'm not that person in real life, let me put it this way. I was able to be that on stage and, and and bring that part of myself out because I am the most, again, like the classic lead singer up there being like, East Coast, fuck you. Everyone go fuck yourselves. And then in real life, I'm like the sweet shy guy. Like I'm trying to be nice to everybody. Well, it feels like performance is like a huge part of the band, right? Like right from the very, not the very, very beginning, uh, but like, you know, there's, these are the quotes for, these are the quotes from our favorite eighties movies, mm-hmm. you know, like there's, there's like an engagement with the audience, you know, East coast, fuck you. Like you're talking about talking, yeah. chirping the audience beforehand yeah. to, to provoke yeah. a reaction. Yeah. I, I always, to me, without that, a, a show is boring, you know, like I love bands who engage, engage the audience or, or sort of demand something from them in, in a way. And I mean, there's different types of musical experiences, you know, I also love Bob Dylan and, and that's a different musical experience, but this, uh, if you're going to go to a rock show and, or a punk show or, you know, a, an aggressive music show, like have fun, you know, like let's have fun. We're here to have fun and interact together and communicate um, and be in the same room and like, enjoy music in, in a spirit, you know, and create that spirit. And um, I think that's what it always, like, to try to boil that down and, and sort of like figure out the, the chemistry of it. But that's what it is. 
Is there ever been a night where every single person has nailed the quote from an 80s movie and had a good quote? Uh, in the early days, we used to encourage people to just come up with a different quote. So it would be different than the actual song. That's what I mean. So, like, but I mean, like, yeah. but I've seen so many times uh-huh. that you guys have played and you've passed that mic to people and they fucked up the quote. You know, oh, yeah. so, and you're sitting oh, yeah. back behind that person being like, I got my quote ready. I wasn't going to fuck it up. Why didn't I get the microphone? Yeah, that happens. That happens to me a million times, actually. Like people <laughs> after the show, like, dude, I had the best quote and you just passed over me. It's happened to me a hundred times. probably. I bet every single show that happens to you. <laughs> yeah. No, you, you, you got that one. Because I think I was probably one of those people that said it to you. But I like to say that I said it to you a long time ago. So I'm, I'm, I like to think I was early on that million person. Well, it was, um, it was our loss. My loss for list- missing you. <laughs> no, I'm sure I would have fucked it up. I'm totally sure I would have fucked it up. Uh, Greg, it has been amazing having you on the show. Thanks, Damien. I've enjoyed this chat. I appreciate you, like enjoying the band so much that you know all these crazy details so I, I really appreciate that well i appreciate you being here and i would appreciate you coming back for a part two at some point in the future yeah let me know i would definitely thank you so much for coming again have a good one damien thanks thank you greg for coming on the show and you heard right there as i told you Greg will be back for a part two at some point in the future. Uh, that was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, we got a lot more to get to it, with him. Of course, you know, they got 30 years, 30 years. Check him out on this tour. Check out that new EP. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show, Greg. Speaking of future, next week on the show, We're going to be kicking it into the future with my good buddy, someone I hung out with years ago. One of my most memorable conversation hangout nights I've ever had on tour was with next week's guest, Jake Duzik of the band Health. This is an incredible conversation. It's a long, long episode, but yeah, he is an amazing performer from an amazing band and someone that has some great insights about punk rock. And when you have that kind of, you know, vibe going with someone, yeah, sometimes you ramble a little bit. Sometimes you spend 20 minutes convincing them to be a wrestling fan. You'll hear it all next week on the show. In the meantime, check out Health's brand new record, Volume 4, Slaves of Fear. It is it is awesome. I love that record. And uh, yeah, once again, this is someone that years ago we had this epic conversation and it's almost like we just picked it right back up all those years, all these years later, you will hear that all next week on the show. Also next week on the show, more details about the Patreon and hopefully a firm launch date for that as well. And, uh, yeah, that's it. We got some awesome, awesome guests coming up on the show. I'm about to hang up on you right here, right now and do some more interviews. So that's it. Uh, thank you everyone for listening. Thank you so much for all your support And go out there and make your own culture. We are into the 201st episode now. So into the post-200 era, into the next five years. And 
may they be better for the world, but I hope they just stay the same for this podcast because I'm having a blast. So thank you everyone for listening. I love you. Go there and make your own culture, sign your organ donor cards, and I will see you next week. <laughs>